Well, I try throughout my daily life to be as patient a person as possible. Uh, it is one of the fruit of the Spirit after all. So uh, I, I make a, an attempt to be patient, but I'll admit there are a couple of situations in my life that test my patience to a great degree. And uh, for me, one of those situations is waiting for a table at a restaurant, especially at dinner time, with our three kids. Now, uh, some of you know what I'm about to tell you. Some of you don't because you haven't experienced it. But if you go into a restaurant uh, and you ask for a table, there is a dividing line between parties of four and parties of five. Right? So if you have four people... The odds are, even, even at a busy time, uh, you might not wait that long. If you have five people plus, you might as well have 25. Uh, they will place you in the category of large tables. So uh, there have been times we've walked into a restaurant and we have some friends that come in and they walk in at, at the busiest time and they've got four people and they say, we'd like a table for four and they go right this way. There's this table or this table or this table. There are six tables. You take your pick. And then we come behind them and we say, we would like a table for five. And they say, that'll be three and a half hours. Uh, go ahead and take a seat. Right. And so as I sit there, I begin to stew. Right. And I'm not saying that I regret having three children. Uh, but there are times I've thought maybe we just rotate which one we leave at home, you know, and uh, just bring four of us to the table. There have been times he said, just just squeeze all five of us at a table for four. We can make it. Right? But, but as I sit there, I begin to stew, and, and over time, uh, I begin to get angrier and angrier as I begin to get hungrier and hungrier. And the kids begin to get hungrier and hungrier, and so I also am angry on their behalf. And so if I'm not careful, I just, I, there have been times, I'll confess, I just like lose my mind. And so a few years ago, we were at a restaurant, we've been waiting for a long time, and I found myself, before I really caught myself, I was behind the hostess's podium, looking at her paper, going, there has to be something you can do. Because in that moment, here's what happens to me, is I forget who I am, right? And so there are times I'll be sitting there at a restaurant, and I will have this reminder going in my head, remember who you are, remember who you are. And, and what I mean by that, it's not just that I want to remember that, that I'm a pastor, right? And that somebody might see me and go, isn't that my pastor like just totally losing it at the restaurant, right? But also to remember that I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, even in that moment where the circumstances are out of my control and my life feels frustrating, even in a small way, it's so easy to forget who I am, that even in that moment, I am called to reflect the character of Jesus Christ. And maybe that happens to you, not just at a restaurant, in the grand scheme of things, waiting for an hour for a table at a restaurant is really an annoyance. It's not truly a trial. But the reality is that some of you in this room right now are in the middle of deep disappointment, deep frustration, deep suffering. And in the middle of that suffering and trial, where your circumstances are out of your control, you and I both are tempted to forget who we are. And as a result of that, we lose our joy, we lose our sense of purpose, 
we lose our anchor. We lose sight of the reality that we are followers of Jesus Christ in every situation, in every moment, that we are called to respond to suffering in the way that Jesus Christ responded to suffering. And that is easier said than done, isn't it? But as we look at the New Testament, we see throughout the New Testament both an exhortation and an encouragement. The exhortation that if you know Jesus Christ, you are called in every moment to remember who you are, that you are His, you are His ambassador, you are His child. And so you are exhorted, even in that moment, to reflect His patience and His kindness toward people and His trust in God. And there's also an encouragement that through the power of God's Spirit, you and I have the power to do it. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to need to go back to the beginning there, Gina. There we go. 1 Peter chapter 2. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Right? So Peter says this. He says, in the middle of life's sufferings, you and I are called to follow the example of Jesus Christ. What did Jesus do? In the face of threats, in the face of even the loss of his life, when he was perfect, and he did nothing to deserve his suffering says he didn't lash out at people. He didn't revile in return. And he didn't abandon his hope in God. But that's easier said than done. How do we maintain a sense of joy and purpose when the circumstances of our lives are out of our control and unpleasant? That's what we're looking at this morning as we look at Philippians chapter 1, verses 19 to 26. We will see the Apostle Paul in the middle of very unfavorable, unpleasant circumstances. Somehow manage to remain joyful and upbeat and purpose-filled, even when everything in his life is going wrong from the point of view of his circumstances. Remember, as we've talked about Philippians, Paul was in jail when he wrote the book of Philippians. Being in jail would not have been his first choice for where to be. Paul was a traveling missionary. His ministry hinged on him being able to travel throughout the Roman Empire and share the gospel. And here he is in prison and he can't do it. Not only that, but he's facing a trial before the emperor where he could die. He he might die. And he indicates that in this passage. And yet Paul's tone is unrelentingly positive. You remember our passage last week. He says, hey, my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. He says, I'm in jail. And guess what? More and more people are hearing about Jesus. And because of that, I rejoice. And then we move into this passage and he's going to say, yes, and I will rejoice as he sits in jail. We mentioned this last week, but the words joy and rejoice are used in in a greater density in the book of Philippians than any other book in the New Testament over and over again. Rejoice, 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 joy, joy, joy. How does Paul do it? Here's the principle that we're going to see that Paul clings to as we move through Philippians 1. What happens to you 
matters less than what God does through you. What happens to you matters less than what God does through you. Here's what Paul is going to model for us as we walk through Philippians 1. Paul is not going to say, I'm so glad I'm in jail. That's not what he says. He's not going to say, I've always looked forward to being executed by the emperor. But what he's going to say is whether I live, whether I die, whether I'm in jail, whether I'm free, whether I have rivals or friends, I want my life to make Jesus Christ bigger. I want my life to make Jesus Christ bigger. And so Paul will say that even in the midst of his suffering, the foundation of his life is not whether he's free not whether he has money, not whether he has friends. The foundation of his life is Jesus Christ. So that as we move through our passage, we ask this question then. How can we maintain our joy and sense of purpose in the midst of life's circumstances? How do we maintain our joy and sense of purpose in the midst of life's circumstances? If our joy and sense of purpose is rooted in anything other than Jesus Christ, then we are rooting our joy and purpose in something that is temporary and changeable. And what does that mean? That means that when it changes, when it shifts, the foundation of our life falls apart. But if our joy and purpose is rooted in Jesus Christ, we have a foundation that stands no matter what happens in the circumstances of our lives. That's where we're going to head as we look at Philippians chapter 1. How can we maintain our joy and sense of purpose in the midst of life's circumstances? Follow with me as we begin. I'm going to begin at the end of verse 18 and go into verse 19. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. The first thing Paul says is, I maintain my joy and sense of purpose because I make Jesus big. I make Jesus big. Now follow with me. Paul uses the theme of joy to connect this passage to the previous one, right? Remember, so he had said in the previous section, I rejoice because Christ is proclaimed, even though some people are proclaiming Jesus with bad motives. He says, some people are proclaiming Jesus to get me in trouble, to cause me distress in my imprisonment. But he says, no matter what, I will rejoice because Christ is proclaimed. And then he goes on and he says, I will rejoice. And here's why. He says, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance according to your prayers and the provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ. What's he getting at? Well, this word deliverance right here, this will turn out for my deliverance. This is the Greek word salvation. In fact, it's the word that is most often translated salvation when we translate it into English. So what is Paul saying? Is he, is he saying, look, I'm confident that I can rejoice because when you guys pray and the Spirit shows up, I know that because of your prayers, I'm going to heaven. No, that's not what he's saying here. When we see the word salvation, we always ask this question, what is he being delivered from? What's he being saved from or out of? Well, he tells us in the passage, 
He says, I'm confident this will turn out for my deliverance or my salvation according to your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on. What does he say? According to what? My earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now as always be exalted, magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. What's he getting at? He's saying this. I'm confident that because my anchor is Jesus, And because you're praying that my anchor will remain Jesus and because the spirit of God is with me, I am confident that I will be delivered from shame when I see Jesus. Because he says, no matter what happens to me, when I see Jesus Christ, I'm gonna be able to say, Jesus, I kept you the foundation of my life. Whether I live, whether I die, he says, I live or die to make Jesus bigger. That word exalted, it's the word magnified. It just means to make something big, to make something large in your life. And Paul says, I'm confident that because you're praying for me and God is with me, that when I get to the end of the race and people say, what was Paul's life about? They will say it was about making Jesus big. Paul says, the foundation of my life, the anchor of my life is to know my Savior and make sure people know him. You and I all have something in our lives that we want to magnify. Something that we want to make big. There is something in your life that if someone says, what is the purpose of Matt's life. What is it in Matt's life that he wants to make big? There's going to be an answer to that. Ask yourself that question. If you asked your close friends, your spouse, your kids, what is it that you make big with your life that you say, this is what my life's about? How would you answer that question? How would they answer that question? We all build monuments with our lives to those things we want to make big, sometimes literal monuments, right? So this week I was looking uh, around for um, some, some monuments that people have built to the things that are important to them. So for example, if you drive through New Mexico, you will see the largest pistachio nut in the world. It's 30 feet high. It's right next to a pistachio farm. It was built by a young man in honor of his family history of growing pistachios. And so he would say, this is life, man, the pistachio nut. Right, from a religious standpoint, if you go to Henan province, China, you might run into the Spring Temple Buddha, tallest statue in the world, 500 feet tall, made out of copper. Because they would say, this is what life is about. We build a monument to what we magnify and we magnify the teachings of Buddha. They would say, that's what our life is about. So we will build the largest statue in the world. We want to make Buddha big. Right now, we may or may not build monuments to the things that are extremely important to us. I mean, we may or may not spend hundreds of millions of dollars to build literal monuments to the things that are important to us. But in one way or another, our lives are going to demonstrate what we want to make big. Right? And so Paul would say, with my life, I can maintain my sense of joy and purpose because I make Jesus big. Again, think about it this way. What if you say the foundation of my life 
is, is, my, is my marriage, right? The foundation of my life is, is my marriage, my spouse. That is what roots me in this world. Now, your marriage is deeply important, right? But, but, but what happens if something happens to your spouse? What happens if something happens to their health? What happens if you have problems in your marriage? And that's the foundation of your life. Instead of saying, my marriage, just like my life, my marriage exists to make Jesus big. So that whether my spouse is healthy or sick, alive or not, here or not, my life will make Jesus big. Then when the circumstances change, your foundation doesn't shift. What if the foundation of my life is a job or a career? Then what happens when I lose my job? What happens when I go backwards in my career? The whole foundation crumbles because it's a temporary shifting foundation. Paul says this, I am confident that when I see Jesus Christ, I won't have any reason for shame because my life exists to make Jesus big. If we magnify anything on this earth, then our sense of purpose is as changeable as the tide. So Paul says, I'm going to magnify the one thing that never, ever, ever changes, and that's Jesus Christ. He says, from the moment I became aware that Jesus was alive from the dead, I have a purpose in my life that can't shift. So here's Paul in jail. And he says, okay, the circumstances are unfavorable now. But this must be where God wants me. So he shares the gospel with the guards. And the guards share the gospel with others. And other people hear of his suffering and begin to share the gospel with boldness. And Paul says, if plan A is not where God wanted me to be, then I guess plan B is where he needs me. Because no matter where I am, I'm going to make Jesus big. And so Paul's joy and purpose are unchangeable because he says, my life exists to make Jesus big. And because of that, Paul's going to say this, I can't lose. He says, I, I, I make Jesus big with my life. And as a result, nothing can happen where I can lose. I am in a win-win situation. Look at verses 21 to 24. He says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose, but I am hard pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. One of the most profound and best known verses in all of the book of Philippians, to live is Christ and to die is gain. What's he saying? He says, if I live, if my case before the emperor goes favorably and I live and I get out, still my life is rooted in Jesus Christ. To live is Christ. He can say, I am so identified with the purpose of Jesus Christ in the world to draw men and women to himself. I'm so identified with that, that my very life is Christ. To live is Christ. And he says, to die is gain. If I die, I get to see Jesus. And I get to know him deeply, like I've wanted to know him. I will see him face to face. So he says, I can't lose. And in fact, the striking thing about this passage in Paul's situation is he actually says, I would prefer 
to depart and be with Christ. And you read that, and, and that, that's striking and so, so counterintuitive. How many people sit in jail awaiting a trial where their life will be determined and say, man, it would be really nice if I lose before the emperor so I can go see Jesus. But see, Paul says, because my life is Christ, what I want to do in every way is I want to reflect Jesus Christ. I want to know Jesus Christ. And he says, if I'm with Jesus Christ, see, it's not dying that Paul looks forward to. It's being with Jesus. So he says, it's a win-win. It's a win-win. I'm sure that most of us in this room at some point have played Monopoly either with our family or with our kids, right? And if you've played Monopoly, you know that that game can go on and on and on. Uh, I saw, I looked up this week, what was the longest game of Monopoly in history? 70 days. Some people played Monopoly. 70 days. Now, I've never played that long. But we have played to the point where we finally all just quit because it doesn't end. Now, if, if you are playing that with your family, maybe you've had a moment halfway through the game where you've thought, you know, it would be nice to win the game, but it would be nicer to lose the game. Right? Because if I win the game, then I win the game, right? And I, I have bragging rights and I'm here and I'm playing with my family and my kids will enjoy this time. But if I lose the game... I can go make some popcorn, right? I can go in the other room and do something else and be free if I lose. You say, so it's, it's win-win, right? If I win, I win. If I lose, I win. Either way, I win. And in fact, I would rather lose this game because there's a greater benefit to be had from losing this game. And it's freedom. All right, so Paul says, look, if I win before the emperor, that's better for you. Because I get to continue to minister to you. But if I lose, I get to be with Jesus. There is no loss for the person whose life is rooted in Jesus Christ. No matter what happens in life, in death, in joy, and in pain. When circumstances are smooth or when the road is rocky. Paul says no matter what happens, to live is Christ and to die is gain. The question is this, can you and I look at our circumstances that way? even when things don't go the way we would have hoped, even in the midst of deep disappointment? Can we maintain our sense of rootedness in Jesus Christ? Even when there's pain in my life, when my health is struggling, when my family is in pain, when my career has stalled, can I look at my life and say, okay, plan A didn't work. My plan A didn't work like I'd hoped. Right, and I have an option here. I can either work harder to try to control my life to somehow get back to some semblance of plan A. Or I can say maybe my plan B is God's plan A. And maybe what I'm called to do in this moment, as Paul says, is to say to live is Christ. Can I continue to reflect him in plan B or C or D? Can I trust him? 
Several years ago, our family, we were trying to move here just in town, an in-town move from one house to another house. And so we put our first house on the market began to look for another house and had a hard time finding a house that kind of fit the parameters, uh, both in terms of budget and size and location and all of these things. A lot of you have been through this process and it can be maddening and frustrating and exciting all at the same time. But we finally, we got an offer on our house, got it under contract, got ready, went and made an offer on a house that we found that was the perfect price, perfect place, perfect house. And so we're looking forward to moving into it. And then the buyer of our house backed out. So we had to back out of the perfect house in the perfect place at the perfect price, right? And it sounds like a small annoyance, but if you've been through it, boy, it was painful because it was the loss of a little dream that we had that I don't even think we knew how tightly we were holding to. And in in the providence of God, a few days later, somebody else bought our old house. But by that point, we had to move to a different house in a different neighborhood, plan B. All right, and I remember walking into that situation and just going, Lord, what, what were you doing? Why did that have to happen? And now we're at plan B. And yet over the years we've lived In what was our original plan B, we've come to see relationships develop in that neighborhood with people who might not otherwise have had the opportunity to connect closely with somebody who knows Jesus. We've seen our kids develop friendships in the neighborhood and have friendships they wouldn't otherwise have had, right? And I don't know what God would have done in that other spot, but the question before us was, okay, now we are here. And can I look at my life not from the standpoint of my dreams, but of God's plans? And Paul says, now I'm here. I'm in, I'm in prison. And he says, I will keep Jesus at the center of my vision. So here I am. What's my new mission field? For Paul, it's this new neighborhood that definitely was not his first choice. But he says, okay, I'm surrounded by guards. That must be who God wants me to talk to. And so he shares the gospel. And so in the face of difficult circumstances, Paul says, I'm going to make Jesus big. And there's no way I can lose. As long as my life is hidden in Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, look, no matter what happens, then I know I can trust God to do what is best. Look at verses 25 and 26. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. He says, I know that in my situation, he says, here's what, here's what I believe in my situation. He says, I believe that it is best for me to remain here. So he says, even though I would rather depart and be with Jesus, I believe that in this situation, it's best for me to remain here for your sake. So he says, I know that's what what God has. And so I'm going to trust him, whether I live, whether I die, whether I'm in jail, whether I'm out. And he says, in this case, I believe I'm going to get out. And for your sake, I will continue to serve Jesus Christ, to proclaim the gospel, to help you walk in your faith to help you proclaim the gospel to others. And so he says, I can trust God to do the right thing 
even though it may not be the thing that I would have wanted him to do. You get the sense from this passage that on a personal level, Paul might be tired. He's joyful. But on a personal level, Paul says, if I had it my way, I'd rather be with Jesus where sharing the gospel doesn't result in persecution and prison and possible death and constant hardship and hunger. He says, if I had my way, I would rest with Jesus forever. He's tired. But he says, I trust what God has. And because to live is Christ, Paul says, I'm going to keep going and going until Jesus comes back or takes me to be with him. So I can trust God to do what's best. If you are a parent, no doubt you either have gone through or are going through, certainly will go through the why stage with your children. Where everything you say, they respond with a why, why, why. Why do we need to eat peas instead of candy? Why? Why do we need to eat at home instead of going to Chick-fil-A? Why can't we go to the swimming pool in January? Why? Why can't I jump off the roof of the house into the swimming pool in our backyard? Why? Why can't I do that? Why? Right? And if you're a parent, after a while, it it gets exhausting. And I remember with our uh, oldest, at some point, we tried to limit her to a certain number of why questions a day. (laughs) It was our first, so we didn't understand that's impossible. So we said, you may ask us five why questions a day. She burned them before nine in the morning. Why, 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 why? And what do you say eventually as a parent when they ask some of these crazy why questions? You say, just because, right? Just because or just trust me. Just trust me. There's a good reason I don't want you to jump off the roof. Trust me. There's a good reason I don't want you to eat exclusively candy. Trust me. Trust me. I have your best at heart. And we're not perfect, but we have their best at heart and we're wiser than what they are. And so sometimes you say, just just trust. And what Paul says in this passage is I can just, I can trust him. God is working. God is moving, even if it doesn't seem like he is, even if the circumstances never shift. Paul says, I trust him. Because that's the example of Jesus Christ, even to the point of death. We're going to see this in a couple of weeks as we talk about the beautiful passage in Philippians chapter 2. Jesus humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross in submission to the Father. So that Peter would say, he continued to entrust himself to God. Because Paul says, I know that God knows best. I know that he's doing something in me and through me so that what happens to me is less important than what God does through me. Famous passage, Romans 8 28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. 
A lot of times we read that passage as a sort of band-aid on the troubles of the world to say, hey, chill out, it's all good. That's not what it's saying. It is not saying that everything that happens to us is good because that's not true. We live in a sinful and fallen and broken world. There are bad things that happen to us and in our world. It's not saying everything that happens is good. It is saying that God is working everything together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. That it is in me and through me, God's purpose will be accomplished. That God can even take the worst of situations and redeem them for his glory and redeem them to make Jesus big. If you need proof, you only need to look at the death of Jesus Christ. The gospel itself is the greatest illustration of how God took the worst and redeemed it for the best. The the fact that Jesus Christ was murdered by his countrymen and by the pagans of this world, the fact that the world rejected Jesus because of our sin, that's not good. But God took the death of his son And he redeemed it for his glory and our salvation. Jesus rose again. And because Jesus died and because Jesus rose, we have eternal life. So now we say it's Good Friday. But it wasn't a good day when it happened. But it's Good Friday because God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. God has a plan that is higher than ours, that is better than ours. So that Paul says, what happens to me is less important than what God does through me. Now, Paul would eventually hit the end of his road. Not here in Rome. From our history, we know that Paul was vindicated before the emperor. He was right. He got out. He continued his ministry. But eventually he was arrested again and executed by the emperor. And in 2 Timothy, as as he was writing to Timothy, and that moment was so close where he was going to die and see Jesus, here's what Paul wrote. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul says, I am being poured out. I have poured out my life for Jesus Christ. And now I'm about to see Jesus. And he says, even in death, I'm confident of life with Christ forever. And he says, I've got no cause for shame. Because I know I will receive the crown of righteousness. And he says, guess what? God's not only going to give that to me. He'll give it to everybody who puts Jesus at the center of their vision. And says, come rain or shine. Come hardship or good times. Come life or death. I want to use my life to make Jesus big. So that Paul faces death 
not just with dignity, but with courage and joy. Because he knows that his foundation can't shake. Because his foundation is the eternal Jesus Christ. So let's ask ourselves this question then. In the midst of our life's circumstances, are we focused on what's happening to us or what God is doing through us? All right, focusing on what God is doing through us doesn't minimize the pain. It doesn't take away the pain. It doesn't change our circumstances. But it shifts our vision. And it shifts our trust. Can I say, God, in death or in life, in hardship or in joy, when, when everything else that I would be tempted to make as the foundation of my life, when all of that begins to crumble and the circumstances change, will I have a purpose that remains in Jesus Christ? To say, I exist to know Jesus, to help others know Jesus. As we've talked through Philippians, that's what it means to say, I want to pour out my life for Jesus Christ. Will we shift our vision even in the midst of trial? And like Paul, to say to live is Christ, to die is gain. Whichever way the wind blows doesn't uproot the child of God who keeps Jesus at the center and says, I exist to make Jesus big. Will that be our lives and our focus? Would you pray with me? Father, we are convicted, yet we are empowered. Because we remember the words of Paul, even in trial, that he says, I'm confident that through prayer and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, I'll be vindicated, delivered from shame. We're confident that you have given us all that we need in Jesus Christ to maintain our focus on Jesus Christ, even when the winds shift. Father, I pray we would be rooted in your word, rooted in the truth, that even out of death, you can bring life. Father, there there is no pain, no suffering, no trial too great for your power to redeem. So help us trust you. Father, we are thankful for this time. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.